Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome to the Metabolic Classroom, a nutrition and lifestyle podcast focused on the truth behind why we get sick and fat. What you're about to hear was taken from a live broadcast streamed on InsulinIQ.com. The Metabolic Classroom is brought to you by InsulinIQ and by Health Code Meal Replacement Shakes. Episode 35, Leaky Gut and Nutrition. Many people today are wary of discussions about leaky gut because there are so many questionable cures being sold without scientific evidence to support them. Let's talk about exactly what leaky gut is and how it's affected by what we eat. Yeah, this is definitely a topic that it gets a lot of attention. It's one of those topics that I think maybe gets a little too much. It's I I worry sometimes that people focus focus on it a little too uh, eagerly without uh, too much justification on occasion, but it is a real phenomenon. This is something that is known to exist where there are uh, pathogens or pathogenic molecules, so harmful things that will move from the dirty guts, which naturally, you know, they're a little dirty. Um, That's that's one of the points of interaction with the environment uh, where we are inject something from the outside is getting into the body. And so it's the role of the intestines to make sure that only what is supposed to come in comes in. And if something isn't supposed to come in, it stays in the guts. And so the intestines really do have an exquisitely well-built integrity to them to make sure that uh, to really do its, its job in keeping the dirty stuff out. Now, there are instances when that starts to break down a bit. And now you have things leaking in, and, and that's why we—that's where we bring in the term leaky gut. <clears throat> so uh, this is a phenomenon, uh, and it doesn't take a lot to find ample peer-reviewed evidence um, directly invoking those terms, and then having uh, ample studies that uh, support the reality of it. So let's let's dive in though a little bit um, with it and, and give a little more detail. So when we talk about leaky gut, in the context in which I'm familiar with it. 
it is usually looking at the migration of a molecule called LPS or lipopolysaccharide. This is a remnant that is found on bacteria and it moves into the bloodstream and then elicits very strong uh, inflammatory responses. So this is a part of um, of a bacteria that a cell, our immune cells, in fact, even more than the prototypical immune cells, fat cells will respond to this, lung cells, muscle cells. I've published study on muscle cells, studies on muscle cells that bind to this LPS. So LPS is a part of, um, of a bacterium that will bind. It's something that the immune cell or any cell will recognize. And then in recognizing that component, of bacteria, it will initiate a prototypical inflammatory response. So this is the cell's way of saying, ah, I recognize you, you're a problem, and now I'm going to mount my defenses to get rid of you. So this is the molecule LPS that I'm very familiar with that is known to move from the, the dirty guts, if you will, into the clean blood. So it, it, normally there wouldn't be any of that moving across, but, but that it does start to happen. And in a moment, I'll highlight a study that, that touches on this, but really it's not that the LPS is moving through the gut cells. It's that it's moving in between the space, uh, through the space between the gut cells. So we, uh, when we have um, the gut cells, uh, that the, the cells that line the intestines, they are very, very tightly linked together through these a series of proteins called tight junction or, or that make a tight junction. They're actually called tight junction proteins and they can become loose. So what is a normally a very tight junction becomes a bit of a loose junction. Now we can have molecules slipping through or leaking through, if you will. So the liver uh, is the first recipient of these things once it's moving from the gut. And the liver's the big downstream recipient. So when you have blood flow um, flowing through the intestines, it goes into the liver and then it goes to the rest of the body. So the liver's on the front lines. But in fact, saying that isn't entirely fair because the intestines themselves are on the, really on the front lines. They have their own very robust presence of immune cells that would attempt to mitigate these problems. But it does mean the intestines become more inflamed. There's more inflammation as they're trying to fight this invasion of LPS. And then what slips through the intestines will go to the liver, putting a particular burden on the liver. But it's interesting because the liver is also the site of the solution. And I'll get into that in just a moment. So when it comes to LPS leaking through the guts into the blood, it's a matter of, uh, it's naturally, we want to be mindful of what might make this happen more readily, or what might I be eating that, uh, that is making my guts more leaky with LPS and other bacteria and pathogens. It's the two Fs, fats and fructose. Now, fructose is, is the low-hanging fruit, actually, and it's quite a simple one. So let's start with that. Fructose increases LPS movement from the guts into the blood. And there's one study that we have linked here in the show notes, and it's entitled, it's in the Journal of Hepatology, which is a very good journal. And it was actually published just a few months ago. Fructose promotes leaky gut endotoxemia. Endotoxemia is just a nice word for saying we have a lot of pathogens moving into the blood and liver fibrosis. And there's more to it than that. Uh, the title gets a lot longer. This is published from a Korean group, again, in the Journal of Hepatology. And what they found in this study was that fructose consumption 
initiate, and they did this in lab rodents. It's hard to do these kinds of studies in humans, rodents, and then cell cultures. So there's, there's a caveat to this. It wasn't done in humans, but they noted that with fructose exposure on the cells or fructose consumption in the rodents, that the tight junctions became leaky. And now they had more of this movement of pathogen from the intestines and then into the bloodstream. Now, so that, that's kind of the, sim the simple side of it. And there, there actually is a lot, there are many more studies that highlight this. When I was pulling up a study, um, there were multiple options. This was the one I picked because it was published just a couple months ago. So I liked that it was so fresh. So fructose is a known cause of, of um, pathogen movement or leaky gut, moving from the guts into the bloodstream. And that might be why fructose contributes so readily to the development of liver problems, not only fatty liver disease, but also steatohepatitis. So inflammation of the liver and fibrosis of the liver, because it's not because the fructose, we typically think of fructose being relevant because it's um, coming to the liver and the liver has to metabolize it. And it turns a lot of it into fat that can certainly happen. But when we couple that with this information that fructose is all also directly making the guts more leaky and exposing the liver more to these uh, pro-inflammatory pathogens, well, then it just really is compounding the problem. It's adding fuel to the fire. So it's a one-two punch on the liver, driving scarring of the liver, which is the fibrosis that I mentioned a moment ago. Now, when it comes to fats, it's a little more complicated. Um, and, and there are different studies that have looked at this in different ways. One study that I want to highlight was, was very direct in that it, it, once again, it was a rodent study because it's easy to, you know, take parts of the intestines from rodents. And it's much harder to do that from a living human. It's harder to get someone to donate a portion of their guts to do this kind of study. But they had these animals eating diets that were macronutrient matched, calorie matched, but it differed in the composition of the fats they were eating. One group of animals and this is a study entitled Gut Mucosal Proteins and Bacteriome Are Shaped by the Saturation Index of Dietary Lipids. This is published in the journal Nutrients, a good journal, in 2019. And what they noted, in fact, I'll just read this section in the abstract. So I'm quoting, the corn oil diet rich in omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acids increased the potential for pathobiont survival, so these harmful pathogens, and invasion in an inflamed, oxidized, and damaged gut, while saturated fatty acids, the demons of nutrition, promoted, uh, that was my addition there, saturated fatty acids promoted compensatory inflammatory responses involved in tissue healing. So to sum that up, the diets that were high in polyunsaturated fatty acids, omega-6, so corn oil, that was promoting not only um, damage, physical damage to the intestines, but and maybe as a result of that, actual enhancing the survival of harmful bacteria and then allowing them to leak in. In stark contrast, the saturated fats, while also appearing to promote an inflammatory response, was actually promoting an inflammatory response that was gearing the intestines for healing. It was enhanced because inflammation is intended to solve a problem. That's why we can never just wage outright war on inflammation. There's very much two sides to it. It serves a purpose. And in the case of the diet that was high in the milk fats, the saturated fats, it was in fact enhancing the integrity um, of the intestines. 
so uh, uh, an inflame, an inflama- a measured inflammation that was actually um, enhancing um, intestinal recovery. Now, a little more to this. We know, of course, that um, diets that tend to be higher in saturated fats will also tend to increase total cholesterol. This doesn't always happen, but it often does. And there are, uh, within the family of total cholesterol, we will very often scrutinize the lipoproteins that are carrying that cholesterol, namely LDL and HDL. It's easy for us, and everyone says that HDL is just universally good. That's not necessarily true. We don't, uh, you know, there's some nuance there. It's easy, and or people universally say LDL is universally bad. That's, of course, not necessarily true, and I'll make that case quite heavily uh, right now. But what's so interesting about these lipoproteins is that we classically think of them as only moving fats around. They're carrying cholesterol. They're carrying triglycerides. They're carrying cholesterol esters, which is cholesterol with a fatty acid. But they are obviously doing more than that. So a couple studies to highlight here. Um, the first one was just published. Um, this was, what journal was it? Um, the title of it is Enterically Derived High-Density Lipoprotein Restrains Liver Injury Through the Portal Vein. This was, just, this was published in the journal Science, so a very good journal, and it was just, in fact, published a, a couple weeks ago. So how's that for recent data? And what they found was that the intestines can make HDL. So the, we typically think of HDL as only being made from the liver, but they found that the intestines will make HDL and that, remember, uh, the, as the blood is flowing from the intestines to the liver, because that's the way blood flow goes um, through that area of the body, as, as the blood flow is moving from intestine to the liver, I mentioned that some LPS, this main leaky pathogen, will move through that. But also, as the liver, as the intestines are making HDL, the HDL is flowing through that, what's called the portal vein, going to the liver, and in the process, binding up the LPS. So the LPS that's moving, if it were freely moving through the body, it would be binding cells and promoting inflammation. But in contrast, the HDL is there and it locks up the LPS, takes it to the liver, and then helps the liver then to dump it from the liver into the intestines to be excreted in the feces. So it really is, it's physically binding the LPS again. I've said that now five times, so I'll just stop, but it's pretty remarkable. So the gut's all in, in, in a way, sensing this problem are providing a solution by creating HDL. Now, we don't know the conditions here. They're not getting into how to leverage that. I would say, well, whatever you can do to increase HDL in the blood is going to be a really great strategy to help enhance the binding where HDL is right there at the gut, ready to bind the LPS and remove it from the bloodstream before it ever becomes a problem in promoting systemic inflammation and insulin resistance. Uh, because that is, in fact, an aspect. I can't believe I didn't mention this. A lot of my postdoctoral work outlined the process whereby LPS causes infl- uh, insulin resistance via inflammatory um, pathways. So that's the HDL component. And again, a takeaway from that would be whatever you can do to increase your HDL is going to be a good thing. We all know, of course, that a low-carb, high-fat, high-protein diet is going to do that very well. Now, that same kind of diet can also tend to increase LDL. Now, I don't know of evidence showing LDL being produced from the intestines. LDL, we know very readily, is a product from the liver. And so while the liver is the first one exposed to LPS before it would then move throughout the rest of the blood, the liver is at the same time producing LDL. 
And again, we classically think of LDL as just being a problem in promoting atherosclerotic plaques. That is extremely debatable. What is much less debatable because the data are so clear is the fact that LDL, this lipoprotein carrying these fats also has on it like HDL specific, what's called LPS binding proteins or LBP. So there are these binding proteins that I mentioned earlier without giving them a name that are going to lock in the LPS and then take it to the liver. And then the liver will process it and excrete it through the bile duct into the intestines to be eliminated from the body. So LP, and this is a study entitled lipopolysaccharide is cleared from the circulation by hepatocytes via the low density lipoprotein receptor. And they did this study in rodents by manipulating the LDL receptors. This was published in the journal Plus One in 2016. So direct evidence in many, many other studies finding that uh, LDL will bind LPS. So while you are eating um, a diet that might be high in saturated fats and people will claim that's increasing inflammation without uh, evidence. In fact, there are studies from Volick and Finney showing that inflammation goes down, but you have LDL levels going up and that might be potentially improving the overall inflammatory pathways or inflammatory uh, profile in the body. And then one last study I wanted to mention, and it might seem like we've gotten far from leaky gut, but remember, lest I've lost the attention of the listener at this point, we're talking about leaky gut um, in particular uh, through the seeing it through the lens of LPS, this very primary um, leaky molecule that is moving and then offending the body. And LDL and HDL act as saviors in a way by physically binding this leaked molecule and then putting it back where it belongs, back into the guts, but at a point where it no longer has the ability to get back uh, absorbed back into the body. The final study I wanted to mention in, hi in highlighting LDL's role as an immune regulator was published in 2007, so this is a little older, and it's published in the Annals of Clinical Laboratory Science. The lead author, last name is Shore, S-H-O-R, and the name of the title of the study is Low Serum LDL Cholesterol Levels and the Risk of Fever, Sepsis, and Malignancy. And they found that they divided the groups into, they divided the study subjects into two groups, people with low LDL, which they considered at lower than 70 milligrams per deciliter, which is on the low end of healthy. But of course, a lot of physicians would say that's wonderful. Clinical markers would say, oh, your LDL is great. It's so low. And then the high was above 70, which I don't think is very high at all. Uh, but nevertheless, they found, and I'll quote, the first group, so uh, the, the group with low LDL demonstrated increased odds of hematological cancer, so like leukemia, by more than 15-fold. Now, let me just pause there for just one second. 15 times, so people with low LDL levels were 15 times more likely to have a blood-based cancer. Now, I appreciate we're not talking about cancer, but it might be relevant that LDL is part of the immune system and maybe a sufficient LDL helps to stop this before it ever becomes a substantial problem. That's enormous speculation. Um, but now let's keep going. Low LDL levels also increase the odds of fever and sepsis. Sepsis is a severe infection. This is when a person typically has to go to the hospital. So septic shock is, is part of this. So sepsis is a very, very bad infection. Of course, if you have a compromised immune system, that's going to happen much more readily. And indeed, the odds were five times. Again, that's a, that's a real number. Uh, people with low LDL were five times more likely to have serious infections known as sepsis. So this kind of brings it all home 
And as I wrap up, here's the summary. The, the too long didn't read, right? That's the kind of part that a lot of people just want to skip to. Uh, a leaky gut is real. Um, one of the main offending agents is a part of a bacteria called lipopolysaccharide or LPS. It passes from the guts into the blood, promoting inflammation throughout the body, also promoting insulin resistance. Fructose is known to enhance that movement or enhance the leakiness of the gut. Polyunsaturated fats are known to enhance leakiness. In contrast, saturated fats, there's evidence to show that they might in fact be attempting to uh, resolve that or improve the integrity of the guts. And then regardless, there are once LPS has made it into the blood, the body has built-in molecules to try to bind and remove the LPS before it can create these systemic problems. And this comes in the form of the oft-reviled LDL and the oft-championed HDL, regardless, in addition to moving lipids around the body, which is how we typically think of these, LDL and HDL, they clearly have immune roles. And one of them is the binding and the removal of LPS from the body. So Ben, uh, and we have a lot of questions coming in, and I'm sure Carly and Rich may have questions. To, but the first thing, I, if, if someone were to just Google leaky gut, and uh, a lot of the first uh, things that come up in search are some medical professionals who say, ah, it's, it's, there's no such thing. So just with going back up to a really high level kind of overview of this whole question, what, what is specifically the things that they think or say or believe that make them conclude that this uh, is not a real thing? That is a great question. In fact, it's something I, I should have led with. Part of the problem with using leaky gut as a clinical diagnosis, and I totally understand this, is that there's no clear clinical marker. It's not like you're scanning the blood and you're saying, and there's something that we typically are measuring and you say, whoa, you've got leaky gut. I, the only thing I could think of um, but, but again, I'm, I'm coming in uh, from an admittedly biased view would be measuring LPS levels in the plasma, which you can do. I've done this. Um, it, it is a, a, a lab test that can be done. I don't know if it's ever done at typical blood labs. So that would be the, that would be the complication. It's that the, the average clinician, much to his or her defense, would be saying, yeah, I get it. I hear people talking about it. I even hear scientists talking about it but I don't know how to de determine this in a patient. And that lends to, I think that lends itself to this almost prototypical or stereotypical disagreement between patient and physician because the patient is insisting um, as the patient is, and sometimes is right, sometimes is wrong, that this, there's something wrong and they think it's leaky gut. And the clinician is thinking, yeah, but I can't, I, I can't confirm this. And so they may be very inclined to dismiss it. I will say that um, the evidence at a, at a cellular level and in the rodent studies that we've been able to use, do make it clear that things move from the guts into the blood that are harmful, that shouldn't be moving, and that there are different scenarios that are altered based on diet that will enhance the movement of these things. And so by that definition, I am comfortable saying leaky gut is a real thing, um, but in the next breath, I'm admitting that it is it would I don't know how it would be confirmed or diagnosed clinically. Yeah, like so many other things, uh, 
you know, when you, when you dive deep into the actual metabolic science and into nutrition and, and its impact on, on many topics, including leaky gut, you kind of run up against this same sort of thing. You know, we, we haven't been trained to recognize that. There's no test that we can just order the test and get the result back and yay, you've got it, or yay, you don't have yep. it. And so, you know, that, that's, I understand. Yeah. So I would, if someone's worried about it, um, this, this, I know this is controversial uh, and I'm not giving medical advice, but I, I'm more and more people have heard me say that if they've got high HDL and high LDL, but low triglycerides, Again, that's an important distinction, low triglycerides, and I would add low insulin, so they're insulin sensitive. Then I often say congratulations, um, not, uh, because of the ample evidence showing that high LDL is protective against many things, including just promoting overall longevity. But I would say that if someone's afraid of leaky gut, then one of the best things they can do is try to get their HDL and their LDL up, and then avoid fructose and polyunsaturated fats, or linoleic acid at least. Yeah, which are four, three or four things you just mentioned are kind of the, the foundation of, of what we teach in insulin smart yep. eating. I mean, yeah, uh, that's right. Yeah, so we don't need to try to get too clever in addressing this problem. Yeah. Uh, Carly, so, Carly Rich, do you guys have some questions? Ben, yeah. Go ahead, Carly. Go ahead, Rich. Go ahead. <laughs> ben, is, the, is this leaky gut, does it go through the whole tract? from mouth to anus, from the esophagus to the small and large intestine to the anus? I mean, is this, is this infecting the whole gamut or just uh -uh. one specific area? Yeah, it would just be the small intestine. The small intestine, okay. That's the, typically the site of movement of, of things. But there's, there's exceedingly low potential for anything to move up until then and after that. You know, there's no real movement of molecules in the large intestine, essentially nothing from mouth to stomach. Um, you know, maybe the slightest, but this is a small intestine um, phenomenon. That's where it would be. So if, if lowered cholesterol makes leaky gut worse, you could say, um, is a statin a bad idea if you have a leaky gut or would a statin be helping contribute to this problem? Yeah, yeah, that's, I can only speculate. I don't know of any data on that. So there are, statins are interesting drugs where they also, some of them, that's, that's a big family of drugs, some of them are known to reduce inflammation. And that has led some people who are somewhat skeptical of LDL, but still somewhat affectionate with regards to statins, to claim that the benefit of statins in mitigating heart disease is less a matter of lowering LDL and more a matter of lowering inflammation. I actually can agree with that sentiment to a degree. I'm not affectionate to statins um, by and large at all. I have no love for those drugs. Uh, but yeah, it's, it's tempting to speculate, and I can only do that, that anytime you're lowering LDL, you are potentially compromising what is uh, a very real part of the human immune system. That yeah. would be my okay. fear. <clears throat> and Among then what would many other fears, mind you, when it okay. comes to statins. Good. So what would you say about, like, I've often heard the connection between um, toxins or like glyphosate, for instance, being a problem with leaky gut and, and really like the correlation of um, the different types of fats that you're explaining. That's just 
Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Correlation, right? Uh, those uh, no, studies? the study I mentioned, no, no, that was an explicit rodent study. It was actual causation. Okay, okay. Because glyphosate, I could imagine, you know, people saying that these chemicals cause leaky gut and they would be high in vegetable oils where they probably wouldn't be high in saturated fats. Yeah. Yeah. Carly, I don't know. I just, there's no study that I know of that there might be data on that. Um, but gly- I know glyphosate is a really big topic and I guess I, I allow my expertise to kind of sort of stop before I get there. I just can't spread myself too thin. So I just don't know enough about it. Well, you could tie it under, um, under insulin because <laughs> yeah. if, if, if inflammation is a secondary cause of insulin, then those two are very connected. Yeah. So, yeah. There you go. Yeah. That would make sense. <laughs> yeah. Hey, Ben, I got a question. Ben, I was reading this article this morning before our uh, stream, and this guy was talking about specific toxins that – I've never heard this before – specific toxins that actual plants – give off mm. that that they are actually defending themselves from us eating them and yeah. they they have a, like a natural toxin that we ingest and that he said this guy dr robert kilt said that we actually ingest a lot more natural toxins than we do artificial chemically based toxins oh Just yes naturally eating too many plants yes I'm sure the yes. vegans aren't going to enjoy that mm. that that comment no 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 so it is a this is uh this is something i know a little bit about um in, in published literature, but again, it's not a forte. So there's that, there's the caveat before I dive into that. There's no question that plants produce molecules that are harmful. We have selectively bred and, and deliberately bred plants that have lower levels of toxins and bred them to have even lower and lower levels of toxins to make these more and more edible. But there's no question that plants attempt to defend their own survival in their own um, uh, ability to produce offspring by trying to deter animals from eating them, humans included. And that is why if we just dropped someone in the forest, they would die because while they may be surrounded by plants, they, the plants, not only do they not get nutrition from them, but they will actually kill them. You know, they are harmful, many of them. I mean, so the vast, vast majority of plants on the entire planet will make a person sick far, far more readily than they will nourish the person. So the fact that, that plants contain molecules that will harm an animal is beyond debate. Um, we have, again, as I said, found plants and bred them in a way to help mitigate those. Um, but we've also started undoing some of that by trying to 
turn plants into protein sources. And so you would look at the peas that we have for, or the soybeans that we have. And while they absolutely contain levels of molecules that I would say harm the body, interestingly, these are often molecules that are promoted as healthy, like polyphenols. Some polyphenols are some of these molecules. There are other molecules called anti-nutrients um, that are, in fact, some of them are polyphenols that are directly inhibiting digestive enzymes in animals from digesting the nutrients from these plants to try to discourage the animal from eating them. Well, in our great wisdom, we don't get those hints that other animals might get more readily. And we take soybeans and peas, for example, and we will concentrate them to get their protein. And because they are such poor sources of protein, we have to get a lot of these to get enough protein. Well, in the process of concentrating for proteins, we are inadvertently concentrating for things we don't want like these toxins, tannins, trypsin inhibitors, um, and, and uh, protease uh, inhibitors. These are molecules that are blocking our intestines from digesting the, the proteins. Again, ironically, they're, getting, we're com they're coming with the proteins that we want. So they're taking their scoop of plant-based protein that they can buy everywhere. You can't avoid these things nowadays. And ironically, they're getting a lot of these anti-nutrients blocking the digestion of the protein. Interestingly, not, not that this is a plant toxin, but it is toxic to the body. Many of these plant-based proteins have potentially harmful levels of heavy metals like lead and arsenic. We don't want these. And the plant uses them. They, rich, they get enriched from pulling them, these minerals up from the soil. And normally, if we just ate a handful of peas or even ate enough peas to make ourselves sick, we wouldn't get nearly enough of these metals to, for it to be a problem. But now when we've taken a thousand peas and concentrated them for their proteins um, through you know, a very industrial process, we end up getting these things we don't want, like toxins and toxic metals. So there's no question that plant, plants have toxins. That should be beyond debate. Anyone who insists I'm wrong has an ulterior motive or they are um, too deep in the doctrine of their own diet. Um, to put it, actually, that's not polite. So I'm not putting it politely. Um, but I do. I, I wish I could be polite on this. I really do. I don't like to offend people. But um, there, that should be beyond debate. Um, that plants have toxins. They want to ensure their own survival, especially in seeds, because the seed represents the site of the animal, the plant being fertile. And the plant, like every organism on this entire planet, it is driven to procreate. That is the essence of anyone believes in any hint of evolution. And I appreciate there could be some debate around that. The purpose of evolution, the purpose of this thing being created is to create offspring. That is the essence of evolution to get a competitive advantage over others in its, in its uh, species to, to propagate itself, to have its own uh, offspring. And so that might be why a seed is particularly enriched with toxins because it wants to discourage animals from eating its seed. Oddly enough, that's a lot of what we get. That's a lot of the source where we get our protein from, like soybean, which is a seed, peas, which is a seed, corn, which is a seed, whatever, pumpkin seed, all these sexy, crazy proteins nowadays. It's always the seeds um, because they, it does have a lot of nutrient in it, but it also has anti-nutrient that is fine for the plant and, in fact, defends the plant because it's harmful to the animal. Yeah. How's that for a long rant? That was long, but that anyway. That was I awesome. It. I, I loved it. I loved it. <laughs> and the the leaves and the stems also have um, yeah 
these anti-nutrients. And, and what I would say is, delight, when you ahead. ferment them, when you ferment them, you start to remove those, those anti-nutrients, these, these toxins start to get broken down. And I don't use the word toxin lightly. That's a cliche pop culture term, but these harmful molecules will get cut down when it has been fermented. And I know Carly loves to get fermented. Well, <laughs> and that like that, I think we often will just say yeah. um, like, I've talked about spinach before because it gave me kidney stones from this anti nutrients of oxalate yep. and um we often say if something's good well i need i can't get enough of it i need more and more and you know when i juiced spinach to try and get as much of that great stuff in spinach as i could i got five kidney stones so i think being moderate with the food that we eat and eating them in ways that are more beneficial than others like you say to ferment them um you know we don't need to go crazy with something just because somebody told us it has a good good you know, longevity nutrient in it or something, yeah. you know. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Great point. Mm -hmm. uh, Carly Rich, any other comments before we go? We do have quite a few questions that I want to run past Ben. Any other comments before no, we do that? No. Go ahead, no, Jack. Let's hear them. Okay. Uh, from Marks, have you heard of the work done on using a two-to-one fat-to-protein ratio with only, with only animal products to cure intestinal permeability. Mm. I've, I've not heard of that, but I bet it would be awesome to be perfectly frank. And, and in fact, that is, uh, that is maybe the single most common sentiment I hear from people who adopt a carnivore diet. And I, I'm not intending to be an advocate of the carnivore diet. I know it's an extreme idea for some, well, eat, regardless, it's an extreme way of eating. I don't mean to imply that's a bad way. But the single most common thing I hear, the refrain, is people noting absolute uh, reversed changes in gut permeability or gut intest you know, intestinal problems, IBS, leaky gut, Crohn's disease, ulcerative colitis, these very, um, from mild to debilitating intestinal disorders, they report virtual total reversal of these problems. Uh, and, and, and again, on the serious end, that's things like Crohn's disease, which can be absolutely debilitating. I have, I've seen so many people report this now that I can't, I can't overlook it. Now, I appreciate it as a scientist. I don't, there are not data and I can't cite a p-value to say that it's statistically significant. But there's no question that there are meaningful, if not statistically significant, differences happening in people that are adopting a diet that essentially eschews plants in favor of of animals. So the idea that it would be a two to one fat to protein, um, that, uh, that would suggest that they're eating a lot of saturated fat, because if you're eating animal fats, you are getting saturated fat, although it's not no animal fat is totally saturated. It's uh, there's a lot of monounsaturated as well. And then various levels of polyunsaturated, but even still, yeah, I could imagine that diet being, um, incredibly, um, helpful for someone who experiences, any problems of gut inflammation or um, gut permeability. Yeah. Good, good question, Marks. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, from Annette, is Manuka honey helpful for gut issues? Does it spike insulin? Um, okay. Yes. Yeah, so two questions. So one, is it helpful for gut? I, I don't know. I don't know what Manuka honey is, but assuming it's just honey with maybe some other 
you know, other nutrients and, and antibiotics that get it. So raw honey, I think can be helpful in, in some ways, like with regards to allergies. Uh, but honey is a mix of glucose and fructose. That's what honey is at its, at its core. And so I would say that probably isn't going to help with gut permeability. Um, and I, it, I don't imagine it would help with insulin sensitivity either. Again, not that raw honey can't um, play a part in health, um, but with regards strictly to the two questions, gut health or insulin sensitivity, I don't know that it would help. Yeah. But I don't know of evidence on this. I know of a case report finding um, uh, unpasteurized raw honey improving allergies, and that's the only thing I can speak to. Carly, you've, you've uh, just as a little side note, you've talked a little bit about certain types of honey that you've seen uh, people have success in, in helping with their health. Yeah, well, honey, honey has an antiviral, antibacterial, these properties about them that can be healing, so... You know, I I don't know the science there, but maybe it can somehow be healing yeah. to your gut as well. Yeah, we know that it's healing on the skin, you guys. I think mm -hmm. in World War One, they would literally use it on wounds, like in the battlefield, to help stave off infection. To Carly's point, so there are immune enhancing properties of raw honey, um, but the metabolic, I I just don't know. Yeah, and the propolis that that bees make, the stuff that they um, they make to to seal the hive, you know, they put it in any cracks where air is coming in. That's even more healing. And, you know, they make like propolis sprays for your sore throat. And so there's a lot of healing properties when it comes to bees. That's for sure. Interesting. Rich? Uh, Jack, this Manuka honey's from New Zealand. It's, a, it's, a, it's supposed to be this antibacterial superfood. Huh. Wow. And uh, so, but I love honey. Yeah. All right. <laughs> uh, from Mary Jo. I have histamine. Rich, that's not a euphemism, right? You mean like honey from bees. Right? <laughs> honey from bees, yes. <laughs> okay, okay. Just making sure. <laughs> uh, for Mary Jo, I have histamine intolerance. Could leaky gut be contributing to the histamine reaction after eating high histamine foods? Um, okay, so histamine is a very potent inflammatory mediator that comes from mast cells. And when people are trying to control an, an allergic reaction, they will give the person antihistamines or um, to try to block the histamine production or histamine blockers to block the histamine receptors to just so that the histamine kind of gets inert um, or to neutralize the histamine in a way. I don't know about eating histamines. Is, is that what she said in the question? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I've never heard. I've never heard of that. I, I, I've never heard of that at all. Um, not and I don't mean to say I'm skeptical of it. I, I want to be respectful of the question. I've never heard of eating histamines, um, but leaky gut. I think it's not hard to imagine that that could contribute to histamine release. LPS is initiating these prototypical inflammatory pathways, and I, I suspect that does at some point involve the mast cells and then the production of histamine. I, I could see that happening. Uh, but I'm unaware of, of anything else uh, with regards to eating histamines. Okay. Mary Jo, hope that helps. Uh, from Carol, are you familiar with the action of zonulene and its ability to separate the tight junctions? Its release is apparently triggered by wheat. Zonulene. I, 
I don't know. Okay. No, that sounds like a, it could be a, a, a protein that maybe makes the tight junctions looser. I'm afraid I just don't know anything about that. Okay. Yeah, sorry, uh, from, from Lindsay, do you know of any correlation between elevated CRP and leaky gut? Yeah. Yeah. So CRP is this um, very clinically relied upon marker of inflammation, uh, and it's increasingly used as a predictor of heart disease insofar as C-reactive protein, a marker of inflammation, is a better predictor of heart disease and heart attacks than LDL, cholesterol. So all the more reason to you know, scrutinize inflammation rather than maybe just the innocent lipoproteins. Indeed, LDL, who may be trying to just mitigate the inflammation rather than contributing to the plaque formation. So um, what was the question? Uh, do, you know, <laughs> do you know of any correlation between elevated CRP and leaky gut? Right. <laughs> That's when you know your, your ass is too long, Ben. That's the question. I know. I always just want to try to give a little context, you know, and then answer it. It's the old wizened professor in me, but man, sometimes it works against me. So LPS and, or leaky gut and C-reactive protein. Yeah. So if you are, um, if you have a lot of LPS and it's activating inflammatory pathways in cells, you will produce more C-reactive protein. So in that sense, C-reactive protein might be a clinical marker of leaky gut, or maybe it's something a person could track and say, hey, look, your CRP is high. Um, maybe you have leaky gut. Let's try changing your diet, you know, and seeing if the CRP goes down now. And it could, but unfortunately that might, the drop in CRP might not have anything to do with leaky gut, but rather just you're eating a food that is promoting an inflammatory response just within the intestines and it's not leaky gut induced. Okay. Uh, from Lisa on our website, my autistic son has been diagnosed with SIBO slash leaky gut. The treatment is apparently antibiotics, then a special restrictive diet. Would there be any other treatments rather than going with antibiotics? Yes. Um, SIBO is small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. So you normally have a lot of bacteria in the large intestine and the idea is that it's basically growing, moving up into the small intestine. I don't know. Um, I think that strategy that she just said, antibiotics and then um, controlling the diet, that sounds like the perfect thing to do. Yeah. Um, I, I, and maybe I'll add a little nuance, which is total speculation. I think an antibiotic would be helpful. I also think a probiotic, maybe after the antibiotic regimen would be helpful. And then um, the foods, we know that bacteria eat starch. They eat glucose. That is the fuel for bacteria. And so don't feed, don't feed the beast. Yeah. It's, uh, speaking of pro uh, probiotics, let's transition to the next question from Amber. Can probiotics help to strengthen gut immunity and the mucosal wall? Yeah, mucosal wall, wall, yeah. Yeah, um, I, I don't know. I, I, think, I think yes, but I don't know of specific data on that. But I would think that yes, it, it could help. But with the, with the caveat being you have to eat a very good probiotic. And I would say the best way to do that is fermented foods. And then if you're getting a probiotic supplement, you've got to make sure that it has an extremely high count and that it's kept at like the perfect conditions that the manufacturer tells you to keep it at, usually refrigerated. But alternatively, and I would say even better, eat fermented foods. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. Um, 
From Tony, what physical symptoms should we look for to detect leaky gut? Uh, I don't know. Yeah. Adding to the problem of the clinician, you know, who shrugs his or her shoulders at the patient insisting leaky gut, the clinician's thinking, I, but I can't see it yeah. and I can't measure it. I don't know that there'd be a physical symptom. I don't, Carly or Rich, do you guys have any input there? It, it seems to be one of the things people go to and weight loss doesn't happen when you're doing everything right and you just can't seem to lose weight. Leaky gut seems to be one of the places we look to blame. And that's interesting because the next question, someone on our website asking, does leaky gut have an effect on the ability to enter ketosis? So I'm, there's no data on that. Uh, <clears throat> probably not. I don't think that would have a direct effect. If there is any, it would be modest. Um, you know, the LPS is going to the liver, but I don't know how that would damage the liver's ability to make ketones. Um, that really is just under the control of insulin. So maybe an indirect effect that if you have a lot of LPS, you have more insulin resistance, that means higher insulin. And then the insulin is dampening ketogenesis. It would be, but that would be that indirect effect. And I think it would be modest. So I, I'm going to, I would say probably not. Okay. Uh, from Eleonora, is there any evidence you know of for using choline, ox bile, and digestive enzymes to heal the gut? Yeah, I, I don't know of studies on this, but I, I could imagine that those kinds of things would help. Okay. Then how about uh, like apple cider vinegar? Yeah, so that's a probiotic and it's a short chain fat. So if you have raw apple cider vinegar, you, it is a probiotic. And then the short chain fats feed um, bacteria. So in that sense, it kind of acts like a probiotic. And how does so it not lower? Only, or, or, or rather a, a prebiotic, I'm sorry, right. to be more precise. And how does it lower insulin? Yeah, so that's to not go really topic known, a little bit. actually. Yeah, yes, yeah, so we don't really know. We know that there is a, a very clear effect that apple cider vinegar will cut down the insulin and the glucose load from starches. And, and I, don't, I don't know. How that happens i've never seen a study that's identified so so maybe the leaky gut does cause a decreased ability to get into ketosis if it elevates insulin maybe maybe yeah mm -hmm. uh, what about collagen have you ever seen anything on collagen being protective no your gut? no i haven't and I, I doubt there's evidence out there just um yeah i shouldn't say that i have not seen that um okay I don't know the degree to which that would work. It, it could. Collagen is a very primary component of the stuff between cells. I think you kind of answered this question already, Ben, but from Crystal, could high HDL mean you have high LPS? Mm, uh, uh, no, I don't think so. No, I don't think we should look at those two um, together because the guts aren't making the, L the HDL in because there's an LPS load. Um, that is an independent phenomenon. It just happens to be that the HDL is there to help start fighting the problem immediately. So no, I don't think that would be accurate. A high HDL would not imply a high LPS. And maybe the evidence for this would be found in studies that put people on low carb diets that find increases in HDL and find reductions in inflammation. And I think if you're really loading the body with um, LPS, you're going to see some increase in inflammation. Yeah. Like C-reactive protein and other markers. So Ben, I got a question for you. A very famous uh, philosopher said that all disease 
starts in the gut. Yes or no? Well, gosh, um, not all disease. So that I, I can't agree with the statement 100%, but I would say insofar as the gut is where um, we are metabolizing and bringing in our foods for better or for worse, and that those foods then have an effect throughout the body, but also a direct effect on the gut um, through the processes we've been talking about today, I would say there are probably a lot more diseases than we think do in fact stem from gut health. Carly, Rich, any other last uh, comments to wrap us up today? No, this has been great. Yeah. Carly, any, any last thoughts? from? Uh, well, actually, my, my one thought when you asked that, Rich, was this connection between the brain and the gut. That would be an interesting thing to understand a little bit better. Um, I've seen it in my own, you know, I had a daughter with severe anxiety who, who had stomach issues and when the anxiety resolved, the stomach got better. So I don't know. Well, maybe you say the stomach got better, then the anxiety got better. Does the cortisol make right? the I mean, gut worse? That way. Ben, does the cortisol, cortisol make makes everything worse. worse? Cortisol makes everything worse. It will literally strip yeah. cells down to nothing in order to get the amino acids to make glucose. It makes so, everything worse. Yeah. So Jack, really the, the, the ending message here is that eat instant IQ smart foods, yeah, ferment your foods, we didn't talk about intermittent fasting, but intermittent fasting helps heal the gut. You know, you know, don't eat fructose, and uh, you know, drink lots of water. And I think watch your watch your seed oils. Yep. Watch your seed oils. Watch that's a pretty oils. good. That's a good, pretty good plan. And and if you're going to eat vegetables, eat them. Don't juice them in in high concentration. Uh, yep. Plants are meant to be chewed, as you always say, Ben. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, thanks. And, and another one, Jack, you want to sneak up on your plants so they don't know you're coming. <laughs> so they don't, they don't spray you with the toxin. <laughs> I, I like that. Get them like before it. they know what's coming. Go in the dark and get them. Oh. <laughs> they'll, they'll see you coming. Well, Ben, thank you once again. What a great uh, Metabolic Classroom episode. It's so fun to, <laughs> to hear the deep science and then to, to also kind of extrapolate and, and sort of condense down some of that stuff. And and many times it comes back to some of the very same basic, simple, but not easy to do things, which is change your lifestyle, change the way you eat. Thank you for listening to the Metabolic Classroom. This podcast is brought to you by Insulin IQ, nutrition and lifestyle coaching for insulin control and better health. Learn more at insuliniq.com. And by Health Code the world's healthiest and most delicious meal replacement shake. Learn more at Get Health, that's G-E-T-H-L-T-H dot com. Find us on Facebook and YouTube at Insulin IQ. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm.